Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Eva Mosby's daughter was struck by anorexia age 10 and spent almost a year in hospital simply because she could not eat at home. The expectation was that parents could eventually become effective supports for the child at home. And this is in line with the best evidence treatment nowadays, a family-based approach. But nobody could coach the parents how to do it. How do you get someone with anorexia to eat? What do you say when they're upset, terrified, violent even? How do you not make things worse? And how do you get your child to complete recovery? This is the gap that Eva now fills based on personal experience, on current research and on the growing know-how of parents and professionals worldwide. Eva produces a range of resources for parents who have children with an eating disorder and there's her website, YouTubes, a vast audio collection of tips. She runs workshops and there's her best-selling book, which we will be discussing today and which is recommended by therapists and parents all over the world. Welcome, Eva. How are you? I'm great, Kathy. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I have to say, normally I don't start a podcast straight in with a recommendation that people buy a book, but I'm going to do it for this interview because when my research team were researching this area of eating disorders and supporting children through recovery, and we came across your book, we have been talking about it nonstop. It's impossible to cover the breadth of it, even in an interview. But I'm, ho- I'm going to try today and just, I'm full of positivity and hope for other parents in the situation that you find yourself in now that they have your book. Um, so I just wanted to, that's what we're going to talk about today. It's called Anorexia and Other Eating Disorders, How to Help Your Child Eat Well and Be Well. Indeed, indeed. I'm glad if I can be helpful today. So Eva, tell us a little bit of your story and the how the book came into being. Well, my daughter got anorexia age 10, which is not uncommon, surprisingly. And we just could not get her to eat. Uh, the hospital was taking care of her and saying, you're good parents, you're going to manage. This is the treatment at home, ideally. But nobody was teaching us how to do it. And uh, it really took more than a year of me researching all kinds of things, including nonviolent communication, mindfulness. I hadn't yet discovered groups of other parents, which do exist nowadays with a lot of knowledge. So by the time I got the skills, my husband and I really understood this. I thought I've got so much knowledge to share. So when she got better around age 12, 13, I felt ready to write And it's uh, been an ongoing process of keeping myself informed and honing down the the, the support I give to parents. 
And Eva, it's such a, you know, it's very, very poignant to think about the fact that that child recovered and that you went through so much and are able to share what you learned in that book. It is a journey. It's a journey. I did a YouTube called The Hero's Journey because heroic work is required from parents and from the, the young person and growth comes out of it. That's the positive spin on all that suffering for sure. So just to help listeners understand how the book is framed, I think it's important. Let's look inside the pages. There are chapters on treatments, causes, practical advice for contexts such as mealtimes, exposure to foods to reduce fear, working towards recovery, school partnership, exercise, eating out, holidays, school trips, dealing with relapse, preparing them for independence, you know, friendship, support networks, compassionate communication, dealing with anger and building up parental resilience. I mean, it's an absolute Bible of a book for parents going through this rather difficult and challenging and sometimes isolating experience. Yes, I wanted to make a book that is uh, comprehensive because there are really good books from clinicians who tell you what to do, but they might not cover the actual practicalities of, well, how do I actually get my child to eat? Or what do I say when my child has a meltdown, when they're violent? And how do I take care of myself? Because I'm cracking up and I'm not a good parent anymore. I'm not helpful. Eva, can we start at the beginning? I think early intervention is something that I'm really passionate about. And I just wanted you to dwell on that for a moment. If we sort of think about early intervention, you know, think about that moment when a parent might recognize that maybe their child is restricting their eating or having disordered eating sort of thoughts, disordered thoughts around food. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about early intervention. Sure. Well, the value of early intervention is recognized by all the science and it's enshrined in the NICE guidelines. We used to be good at it in the UK until, uh, well, we became good at it recently in the last few years. And then COVID came along, cases shot up, and now we're bad at early intervention again, which is a very terrible, sad thing because it means treatment then is longer and harder. But there is still recovery. I want all your listeners to know this is a treatable illness. That's the good news about this awful, horrible illness. So early intervention means you should be able to go to the GP today with your questions. And within a day, the GP should be referring you to specialist eating disorders. And then within a, another 24 hours, you should be getting a phone call from the, the specialist CAMS team, eating disorder team. It's not happening now, but that's the kind of early intervention we're talking about, a week or so, not three months. And Eva, what advice would you give a parent who doesn't really know if there's a problem? They're just sort of following their instincts. They, they don't know what the sort of the red flags might be in their child's behavior or what they're saying to themselves or in their thinking. What would you say about that? Yes. So if you Google anorexia, binge eating disorder, bulimia, you will find some very good lists of symptoms. I thought I would uh, tell you a few ones you might not read about. They're a bit more unusual. For example, your child becomes passionate about cooking. 
baking and cooking and recipes and TV programs, and they never eat the stuff themselves. They just love to watch you eat it. That's because they're starving and they're trying to eat vicariously. In general, a test I would do is take your child out for a weekend and see how they behave around food for two days in your presence, because they might put up a good front for one or two meals, and then they might have a complete meltdown with the guilt and the anxiety of having to eat the next meal. I was sure my daughter at age 10 had anorexia when we were off on a weekend. She spent 10 minutes not being able to decide what food to have at a lunch counter. And she went on and on about the bacon and eggs she was going to have at the B&B. And she never ate it. She said, oh, I'm not hungry. I just want a little bit of, you know, special K. So these were quite, you know, these are useful signs when you're really not sure, is my child not very hungry at the moment? I mean, obviously, lots of other signs like, are they withdrawn? Have they suddenly gone vegan? Which is tricky because a lot of kids go vegan for a good reason. But, you know, are they talking about health all the time? There's been a terrible COVID effect where we go on and on about healthy eating and healthy exercise. And so if, they, if they're really obsessed by that, you know you've got a problem. And, and it's difficult because if you ask your child, the thing about most eating disorders, let's say especially anorexia, is it feels right to your child. It doesn't feel like a problem. It, it distorts the brain so much that they don't realize they have a problem. They don't want you to go and do something about it. Binge eating, vomiting, there's more guilt and distress around that. So sometimes you can get more truth from your child around that. At what point do parents, I mean, often little girls, for example, might talk about their bodies, how they look, how other people respond to them. What sort of that body dissatisfaction I've read is quite a sort of a potent risk factor for eating disorders. So did you have any experience of her talking about her body in a negative way or that sort of body dissatisfaction expressed? It grew as uh, when we looked back, we thought, oh, the last few months, the anorexia has been building up. So we could look back and say she had said things like, does my tummy look fat? You know, she was 10. So she had her own vocabulary and she would look in the mirror a bit at her profile. We thought back maybe a year before she'd had stuff about, am I fat? But, you know, we're in a context where all the kids are speaking like that in school. And there's research to show the, the fat talk that is going on in schools already age, I don't know, six, seven, eight. So it's difficult for parents to know what is normal, what is not normal. What is sure is that they can counteract what we call fat talk, fat shaming talk. They can do their best. We're in a tricky, tricky society. So that on its own isn't the only, you know, my de you, you, you wouldn't say my child has definitely got an eating disorder because they're thinking they're fat, but it would be part of the whole thing. Obviously, if they lose weight, that's a complete no-no. Children have to grow. They must not lose weight. That's a really big red flag, which even GPs can miss because we are so educated to think, oh, losing weight is a good thing. It's not. It's not for children. If they gain a lot of weight, you've got to think, is that a growth spurt or are they binging? Now, I must say binging is more rare among, among youngsters. It's, that's why I tend to talk more about anorexia and similar things. 
I haven't mentioned ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Disorder, because that tends to start very young and it doesn't tend to have all the mental side involved. It's just they can't eat for some reason. So that's a little bit different. And of course, anorexia is the, the biggest sort of category that a lot of these um, eating disorders fall under. So it seems to be the most common one in adolescence with a sort of a mean age of onset of around 14. So it sound 10 sounds very young. Yeah, I think maybe maybe studies are going to show uh, it's it's younger than 14 now, the mean age. I'm sure mm-hmm. it's getting younger and younger. Anorexia is not the most common eating disorder and we should pay a lot of attention to the other eating disorders. I tend to be more knowledgeable about the restriction side of any eating disorder. And that is relevant to bulimia and binge eating as well, because although you would think people with bulimia or binge eating eat too much, they have many times of restriction. And if you can stop the restriction, that will probably stop the guilt the hunger, the rebound eating. So it's still relevant to talk about restriction in those eating disorders. Eva, tell us what it feels like as a loving parent to have to confront the fact that you have to go to the GP and how on earth do you get that child along to the GP feeling confident that you're not going to make things worse. I think it's quite a scary step for many parents to go and bring your child to the GP and talk about these issues. For me, the most scary thing is what if the GP says the wrong thing? Because they're not specialists and we have many stories of them saying the wrong thing. So they might say, oh, you're nice and slim. (laughs) You're fine. That would scare me more than... What is unlikely to happen, I believe, is you don't give someone an eating disorder by saying, I'm wondering if you have a problem with eating, let's go to the GP. And again, I've spoken to many specialists, well, I've spoken to specialists who have said, if a parent is worried, they're most probably right. So if you, the listener, are in this situation and the GP says, no, let's just wait and see, it's just a phase, The GP is not qualified to make that diagnosis. I apologize to the GPs who are listening. Hopefully they can recognize this. That's why we have specialists. It's not easy to diagnose. And we also want to catch them before they tick all the diagnostic boxes, because that's early intervention. But in terms of, I think what you're asking me also is, how do you speak to your child about it? And you need to be very non-judgmental. There is no blame. They're not stupid. They're not vain. They didn't choose to have this problem. You're not a bad parent either. You didn't create this problem. All the science of causation shows multiple causations. And you must be non-judgmental and loving, but also very firm. You know, darling, I need the advice. I'm not happy to see you in this state. You've become very withdrawn. You're looking sad. You're alone in your room. You know, uh, that kind of thing. You know, showing your concern and then really persisting, I do want to go to the GP. And in the worst case scenario, you go to the GP without your child and you you can still probably get a referral of some kind. There was a lovely part of your book where you describe what it's like for a parent. You know, it's scary. 
you can begin to miss your child as the sort of disease takes over. You have to deal with uncertainty, exhaustion, feeling unconfident. Home can feel like a battleground. You might be in conflict with clinicians, your own partner, insurance companies. You're scared of the next meal time, sense of blame, you know, not understood by friends or family, feelings of detachment, worrying about other children in the family, you know. It was quite a sort of a moving list. You know, it really develops that kind of empathy for what parents are going through in this regard. Yes, I've learned through my study of nonviolent communication that you don't, you cannot educate people and give them advice and tips until they feel heard and listened to. And that's a massive principle in how we talk to our children. And I thought I've got to use the same in my book when I'm talking to parents They've got to know I'm on their side and I kind of get it. I don't get every detail, but we have common stories and it is really hard that all the things you listed are really common. And, and therefore there's a relaxation that happens, which means, okay, now I feel I'm being held by the hand and I may be going to trust the tips, the, the knowledge that's in this book. Because otherwise parents can think uh, they can be very defensive, you know, and, and too scared. They, parents say they, they shut off. They, oh, they were overwhelmed. That happens. You also reflect on what's going on in the child's mind. And I think there's a lot of myths that need to be busted in terms of, you know, what a child with an eating disorder is actually thinking and how they're, you know, articulating that. I mean, you've said that some of the thoughts that might be occurring is that food is bad, maybe potentially even dangerous. Uh, They've no peace of mind. They think their body might be gross. People tell them they're in trouble and insist they need help, which feels like a big threat to their peace of mind, which is fascinating because, as you say, the eating disorder is serving some sort of helpful purpose to them. And it's important to sort of hold that in your mind. They may also feel misunderstood. They might find it, it is impossible to eat. And, you know, it's it's very important to, I mean, you list other things, their body might hurt, they might feel cold, they might feel anxious, they might feel anticipate that feeling full is unbearable you know there's so much especially when you think about a little 10 year old how much might be going through their minds thank you for listing all those things i i wanted to list them even though it's second hand it's from what people with eating disorders are reporting or what i could guess from my daughter but i think half the work of the parents is done if they can get in their child's shoes. So not condone the behaviors, but really understand the suffering. Your child isn't stupid and they're not vain. They are in a state of incredible anxiety. Much of it comes from malnutrition and starvation because we know that happens to people who are starving and who don't have an eating disorder. There's a lot of mental distortions there, we know from studies. But on top of that, the eating disorder adds another internal conflict of, I must fight my urge to eat, or I really find this food disgusting. I feel gross. So if we can understand our children, we then stop saying things like, well, why don't you eat? How hard can it be to eat? Or, or why, why are you putting me through this? Or These are some of the, the wrong things in adverted commas to say, you know, why don't you just eat? Why are you putting me through this? Why can't you just tell me what's wrong? 
that that's obviously going to force a child into their sort of shell, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. We unfortunately with an eating disorder, parents need to learn super skills of communication and compassion. You know, they were good enough parents before, but this is so extreme. Our children are so sensitive to criticism. I think there's even been a brain scans that show they you show them a neutral face, they see it as as critical. So they they need a lot of love and validation. While we are also persistent about changing their behaviors and getting them to eat. So let's assume a child goes off to the eating disorder clinic. They get on with the professional job of dealing with that child. I'm interested in what the parent's role is in treatment and which you deal with extensively within the book. How do we begin this journey? I think I noticed that you said it's good to prepare a list of symptoms, you know, so accompanied by facts and anecdotes. To what extent is that early work as a parent enhancing the the work of the professional? How do you get that partnership off to a good start? What sort of information do they need from you? Okay, I think the GP, to make the, the, the referral, needs a few facts and symptoms and descriptions, which I list in my book. But... Once you've been referred to specialists, I don't think you need to prepare. They know what questions to ask. And I must confess that so many are, as soon as you have anorexia, for sure, you are a bit like um, a copy of every other kid with anorexia. So you don't always need to get into so many details. There are so many similarities. So this is especially with modern treatment where There is no emphasis on going into a person's individual past, unless there's been some amazing special trauma. But for most kids, they just got the eating disorder for unknown reasons, you know, some genetic background, some temperamental thing, plus a few stresses in life like lockdowns. And so there's not a huge amount of backstory to give because the modern treatments focus on initially the biological aspects. Let's get your child's brain and body working again by helping you to feed your child. So in a way, it's quite behavioral, it's quite mechanistic, it's physiological. The deep psychological stuff might be needed at some stage, but the old treatments, which are responsible for the rather bad recovery statistics that some parents will find on the internet, Those were all treatments that treated eating disorders as purely a psychological illness. And so the early appointments would all be about the person's past and what happened in their early childhood and what bad things the parents did to them. And, you know, we've let go of that. I'm not saying it doesn't have a place at some stage, but it's very, very ineffective and time-wasting if that's what happens at the beginning or if that's the only thing that is given. So in a first appointment, the parents will be told right from the start, go home, get your child to eat. And of course, that's where my stuff comes in because the parents say, if I'd known how to get my child to eat, I would have done so. (laughs) So first of all, you're at the GP, the information, the GP, I think you suggest in the book, potentially making that first visit alone to the doctor. Why is that? Yeah, I'm not sure if GPs would appreciate that advice. I know I did it because I couldn't get my daughter to the GP and the GP responded very well and said, okay, I'll refer her. 
but I think most GPs would say, I really need to see this young person. I need to at least uh, take some vitals from, from them, blood pressure, heart rate. So, but, but as a last resort, go without your child. You, you need that referral. Hang on, hang on. I must add that in England, there are standards, not in Scotland, not in Wales, not in Northern Ireland, but in England, there are standards, which is that you can, as parents or as teachers, or group leaders, youth leaders, you can refer a person directly to the eating disorder specialists. So that bypasses the GP. And as soon as you've made that referral online on their website, then you'll probably get a phone call as parents asking you, you know, what's this about? And then you'll take it from there. Okay. While they are waiting for treatment, what is that period of time like in a family home where you're sort of caught in a purgatory of not having professional advice, but still trying to manage this terrifying disease at the same time? This is a very relevant question at the moment, because whereas before COVID, for the last two, three years before COVID, people could get treatment within one week. Now it can be three months. It can, I've heard, five months so the, 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 the best of eating disorder services are really struggling. So what you would be told if you had specialists would be get your child to eat three meals, three snacks a day, get their weight back up, any weight that they've lost, they've got to recover, be non-judgmental, be supportive. So parents can start doing that with the help of stuff like my book, etc., even without professionals, it's not ideal. But in a way, at this stage of treatment, it's quite simple, let's say. If you find the skills to get your child to eat three meals, three snacks a day, enough calories to regain weight, then you're doing pretty much the same as if you had a treatment team. So Eva, very important for parents listening who are going through this, some of your very important tips, one of which is to take a strong lead. Tell us what that looks like when you're parenting in this situation. Okay, so a strong lead, that's a nice expression because some people say parents have to take control and that can get distorted into you've got to sit your child down to a meal for however long it takes. If they don't eat, you take away their mobile phone. It can be the message of this modern treatment, which is in the NICE guidelines, a family-based approach, that message can be distorted to this rather military, combative approach from parents. I will not take no for an answer. When you really read it from the source, from the people who developed the approach, the Maudsley team, the team at Stanford and Chicago, uh, Locke and LaGrange, they advocate kindness as well as effectiveness. You've got to be firm enough to get the result. Sometimes you will not get the result. The eating disorder is too strong just for now. It's nobody's fault. Some children need a spell in the hospital. And then when they come back home, you reuse this business of taking the lead. So for almost all youngsters, we have to stop them restricting. And that includes if they've got binge eating disorder. They've got to have these regular meals. So we sit them down, we have chosen the food, we have cooked without them, and we sit them down and the food is on the plate. And we spend half an hour, an hour, maybe not much more than an hour, 
helping them to eat with very skilled prompts, kind and firm and precise prompts. And that works in taking away the guilt and the ambivalence from the young person who has a small part of them that is hungry and wishes that they could eat or that they could stop exercising and rest. And then the other part that is battling them, which is their horrible inner critic, sometimes they actually hear a voice saying, you're fat, you're disgusting, you're a slob, you're lazy, fight your parents, you promised yourself not to eat breakfast, and here you are, you're even thinking of eating breakfast. So with all that going on, it really helps when the parents say, look, I'm not giving you the choice. This is what you need, and I'm going to help you to manage it, even though it scares the hell out of it, out of you. Is it common for a child in that situation to cry, to throw the plate across the room? What are the general responses that parents hear in those very, very anxiety-inducing moments where you're trying to get them to eat? Massive fights, indeed. In fact, in the old days, parents would be blamed because the therapists would see the fights. (laughs) They would see a family at war and they thought, oh, that's what caused the eating disorder. But actually, it's the eating disorder that has created these, either the child throwing food around, screaming, getting away, running off to their room, running out of the house, or other young people break down in tears. They can shut down with their their heads down, their hoods over the head. They can shake. They can tremble. It can be very, very heartbreaking to see this level of fear. So a parent's job, and this is why there's so much in my book on communication and soothing skills, a parent's job becomes, I have to become an expert in helping my child manage the anxiety enough that they can manage the next bite. And that after a meal, they're not so scared that they, with guilt and feeling awful, that they're going to promise themselves never to eat again to avoid this spike in anxiety. So we become emotional coaches. We become anxiety coaches with many skills. Yeah, I really like the idea of tackling the anxiety as a sort of a core goal within that interaction with your child. Presumably, you know, tea time happens traditionally at a time of day where parents are tired, parents work. You know, it must be important for the parent to feel good about themselves, to be able to prepare for what might feel like a battleground? Have you got any tips for the actual parent in terms of maintaining their well-being through those meal times? Yes, there are short tips that are like first aid, and then there are long-term aids that develop your resilience. And sometimes they're the same. So a massive tip, which I find is probably the most effective one to teach parents quickly, is self-compassion. And there's uh, that's been researched, and it can take 30 seconds to put your hand on a part of your body that feels soothing, send yourself kind thoughts, feel the warmth and goodness, not blame yourself, say, you know, this is normal, my darling, you're having a hard time. It's very hard to be the mum or dad of a child like this and to be shouted at or to be scared for your child's life. And you breathe and you again, you feel the kindness in your hands because we're using oxytocin from touch and nobody knows you're doing it. 
and you're doing it at the same time as you're interacting with your child or with someone else. So that's an emergency self-compassion tool, which when I teach it in my workshops, I'm often glad to see that, you know, 70% of people say, oh, that was useful. But then it's not everyone's cup of tea. So for other people, it might be they need to get out and have a cycle. They may have coping tools like, I am actually 5% better, and that's good enough. So I can stand the next five minutes before I scream or before, rather, I make a dignified exit. So there's lots of tools like that. And then the more long-term tools would be to really develop a self-compassion instinct so that whenever something goes wrong and I have a negative thought, a catastrophic thought about the future or a self-blaming thought or a nasty thought about my child, which is perfectly normal, I know how to respond to it with self-compassion. I can also take moments of goodness from seeing my dog, from seeing a rose in a vase, really milking the good things and amplifying them in my body. You know, these are all mindfulness tools and we develop them with habit and it becomes second nature and they sustain us for the long term because, you know, anorexia or other eating disorders are not fixed in just a few weeks. Presumably as well, you have to have a sense of noting your own progression. So it's important to say, because it's a long journey to recovery in some cases, and at the end of every day or every hour or every week, you say how well we've done, what have we achieved, rather than thinking, you know, oh, how long will this last? And wishing for rapid recovery can be quite exhausting, presumably. Yes, learning the skills of acceptance of reality is quite a big one. Uh, so wishing, wishing, wishing is maybe not useful, but maintaining hope, valid hope, because these eating disorders are treatable and things will end up good. And some parents do say it's useful to keep a note of the good things that happened because we need that perspective. Otherwise, Obviously, we all as human beings have a negativity bias and we're quite shocked by what a hard day we've had, maybe. So still thinking about that meal time, potentially you've been successful getting your child to, encouraging your child to eat. And now after dinner, how do we sort of manage their desire potentially for exercise? Is that where you have to remain authoritative again? Yes, most children who have an exercise compulsion need us to be quite firm. I'm sorry, my darling, I quite understand that you have a need to move and that you sense that that would um, calm you. Unfortunately, right now, what you need is rest. However, we can go for a walk together. So, you know, you would have a gentle 10-minute walk and your child cannot go for a sprint for a run. You might also plan with your child if they're willing. Mine tended not to collaborate very much, but some are much more collaborative. And if so, then let's use that. And so we might say, what would help you after a meal? And if they go, I don't know, you could say, how about if we got into a Netflix series? So you can look forward to the meal and you can look forward to after the meal. Or you might plan a drive, a lot of... <laughs> Young people go for a drive with their mom or dad after a meal. So these are all little strategies to keep your child distracted from their horrible guilt after a meal. 
Some children are okay after a meal. It depends where you need where they need the help. In your experience, how does the eating disorder impact on sleep patterns? Usually there is a lot of guilt as they have the quietness of lying in bed. It's very hard for them to rest. Maybe some do secret uh, scrunches behind and under the covers. I know my daughter did that in hospital and there were nurses <laughs> keeping an eye. It gives space to the internal critic, the eating disorder voice, so they feel tortured. So there are many, many parents who bring a bed to their child's room, a mattress, or who take their child to their bedroom. And some have stopped suicidal actions that way as well. Suicidality is a possibility in our children with an eating disorder. Usually it's more thoughts of, I can't bear this. I would rather not live. But all the same with all this misery, why not have your parent nearby during the night? Which of course adds to the parent's job that they're there 24 hours a day. But sometimes it means they're they know they're going to avert their children feeling even worse during the night. Eva, what about the circle of support that you enjoyed as a parent? You know, when you look back on your experience, there must have been angels who were helping you in terms of some friends or someone in school or someone in who was a clinician. What's your sort of reflection on the power of that supportive network for the actual parent or carer? To receive understanding and empathy and a human reaction, it's just like, oh, it's a balm. I kept hugging people (laughs) when they were nice. I hugged the school head. I hugged um, some of the therapists. I hugged some of my friends. I became so genuine. You are a genuine human being who can see that I am having a very hard time and that this is the real serious thing that's happening to my child. Some friends failed me in the sense that they were quite quick to wanting to give me advice. So any of your listeners who are not directly affected by an eating disorder, be a good listener to this this mom or dad that is your friend. Just listen, listen, listen. And, you know, things like, well, Don't you think your child should be more respectful and not shout at you? It's not helpful because, you know, we would have thought of it ourselves if it worked. So I had the extremes. I found some people were terribly professional, you know, teachers or therapists. They they just would hardly smile. They were all into their statistics and plans. And I just thought, oh, for goodness sake, can you not be a little bit human? And then others were just beautiful and moving. And tell us about this relationship to schools. In my experience, I've met so many school staff who would do anything to help young people in this situation. And it can be a very difficult position for a teacher or a head teacher or a school counselor to be in. And what what do we need to make sure is optimized in this circumstance between home and school? What is it? What does an effective partnership look like? Hmm. Well, I'll give you the example of when my daughter had a form of relapse, not too bad, but it was still a relapse, age 15, 16. I contacted the head of year. He was very matter of fact, but also I sensed he was non-blaming. He went straight into what can we do to help? 
and I could say exactly what I wanted. You know, can you supervise meals in the dining hall? Can you understand that my daughter will be late to school sometimes because breakfast is a priority? Can you tell me if there's going to be some really stupid uh, health promotion lessons where they get told blah, blah, blah about um, healthy eating and weight loss and exercise, which are so harmful to all the kids. So I was able to ask him exactly what I wanted. Also, the eating disorder service met with the school and with us. And for example, one thing they did really usefully when my child was 11 and moving into secondary school was let's get her with schoolmates who are good to her and away from the bullies of primary school. Because the rule was, oh, you don't choose who you're going to be with in your new school. Well, no, they made an exception for her. Another example was when my daughter got really stressed, aged 17, when she got a new math teacher who just confused her. And I said, look, shall I speak to your head teacher about changing you? And she said, I'll do it. He likes me. He values me. Because many of our kids are just beautiful in school. They're monsters at home in their behaviors. But the teachers love them. And she went and she said, I'm really stressed out. I'm, I'm already struggling with this eating disorder. It doesn't help to have extra stresses. And he gave her another math teacher, you know, which was against the general rules. So that kind of partnership, also ahead of school trips, you know, the more my daughter could have a normal life, the better, but she still had to eat. So to have the school discuss plans with me on how to make this school trip work, that was another really useful aspect. You see, this is why your book is a must read for the school staff and the parent, because when you're working in alignment, you can be so effective. It is incredibly important that that teacher was monitoring mealtimes at school in a way that was understood to be aligned with how you were doing it as well at home. So I love that approach. I think that sounds like a rich partnership. Tell us a little bit about siblings. I'm not sure if your daughter has siblings, but in terms of general advice, you can imagine how all-consuming the management and support of an eating disorder is and other children might feel enormously left out or a little bit isolated or fed up even? Yes. My daughter is an only child, so I've tried to learn as much as I can about siblings from others. And I mean, my book is full of footnotes, of endnotes, and I, I do link to people who know a lot more than I do about siblings. I think the main things are recognize that siblings know something is wrong, however young they are. They are worried. They think we as parents are not doing enough, so they need to know we know our business. And then the other thing is they can protect us from their own troubles because they think we can't cope with the whole, you know, their troubles as well. So we need to give them clear messages that we are available to them as well emotionally, even if we have less time for them and that maybe we're having meals separately, for example, because the, the child with the eating disorder needs more personal help. A common piece of advice is recruit every friend and family member that you can to take the siblings out to the cinema or to their driving lessons or all these other things. You need a village. You need a village in this, in this business if you can get one. 
often if people think about some of these eating disorders, they immediately assume that it's girls who are, you know, more likely to be affected. But have you met parents who've got, you know, boys who've been through similar journeys? What's your sort of experience of that? Massively, yeah. We we should just completely let go of the idea that eating disorders is, is for females. It certainly is not for binge eating disorder, for example. But even with anorexia, although there are more females, there are many, many boys. And the problem is if we talk about it as a female illness, then the boys can get misdiagnosed. They can feel ashamed. They can feel stupid. <laughs> And and mostly they you know they need they need the same treatment and I note that you've done at least three other podcasts with great people on eating disorders and uh, just not long ago you had Nora Trumpeter just discuss um, eating disorders in boys and the how it might be a little bit different but it doesn't necessarily have to be different they they can be just as much into being thin some it's about being muscular but with zero body fat, which is extremely dangerous. You know, people need to understand that somebody may look good and muscular, but if they don't have the required percentage of body fat on their body, they are ill, they are starving. And just yesterday, I interviewed a gentleman, a, a forensic psychologist and researcher, Dr. Ayman Al-Assam, and he has done great work into vulnerabilities and children's risk online, digital risk and digital vulnerabilities. And his data was so stark that those with an eating disorder also can be very vulnerable in the digital world to the content that they read and see, but also more likely to be bullied, more likely to feel worse about themselves on consumption of social media and particular apps. So that was very apparent in my discussion with him yesterday. And I just wondered, it may have been through your journey, your daughter wasn't quite didn't have access to social media in that particular time period. But what is it that you're hearing now about how social media could help or hinder in these particular cases? Yes. Well, my daughter had social media when she was 15, 16. So I was very conscious of, you know, what was she seeing? She was definitely quickly checking calories on her phone when I brought a new kind of meal. I could just see her doing that surreptitiously. So, okay, social media, it's horrible this decision for parents, whether to block, whether to monitor, because as other people you've interviewed in podcasts have pointed out, their social life and their connections uh, come from social media. At the same time, there may be a time at which you need to monitor or block things because our poor children have a terrible compulsion to look for calories, fat-reducing methods, uh, and then they may even get into pro-ana stuff where they get encouragement to be even thinner than anyone else. They're seeking out those images. So it's a conundrum. I think each parent needs to try and assess the best they can, what's the best way forward. There is a chicken and egg thing in everything to do with eating disorders. We don't know if something caused or was, was part of the many causes of an eating disorder or whether they became that way because of the eating disorder. They then start seeking out the reassurance, the constant reassurance of peers. And Eva, when was the moment, was there a moment where you thought, oh my gosh, we're going to make it? This recovery 
is occurring? Can you remember it as a particular time? <laughs> I wish I could say so. I think it's like a long tail. So you never know when it's really finished. We certainly had moments of utter joy. So I think many parents will tell similar stories. Your child is still really ill, but you are over the moon because they said, I'm hungry. Or because they said, maybe I could have an ice cream. And you're just like, whoa, and you're uplifted and you see the hope, you see your child. Or because you heard your, your child sing or laugh. It's like, whoa, I can see my child is still there. Because during the eating disorder, they look like they've been taken over. You know, I can see why in some societies there might be an idea of possession. They, they look possessed. Mm -hmm. So moments of joy. I don't think I can pinpoint a moment where I thought, right, she's, she's recovered. It's a progressive reduction of symptoms and behaviors. And then you think, my child has lied to me so often. Mm. These are lovely, truthful kids, mm. but the eating disorder makes them fight for their lives. You know, you would lie to a terrorist, wouldn't you? So they lie. So you never know, well, for a long time, you don't know, is it true they're actually in university, actually eating? So gradually you say, well, I've not seen any bad signs for a long time. That sounds like recovery. I've just come back from two weeks holiday where I was 24 hours a day with my daughter, who is now 23. I saw only beautiful things. Oh, that's so poignant. I'm so happy for you. Oh, she's, she's oh. joyful. She's expansive. She ate heartily. There was food on all the time. And so she didn't show an obsession with the fact that food was always available. But when she was hungry, she went and looked for it when I wasn't hungry. We ate together, beautiful foods, wide variety. You know, this is a girl who wanted to get vegan at some stage. And then no, no obsession around exercise. So there was a gym where we were, and she took me to the gym and introduced me to a few things. But absolutely no compulsion, no obsession. We only went two or three times for fun over three weeks. So these are all really good signs to me. And, you know, my vigilance is way down now. That's so encouraging. And does she have any sort of retrospective thinking about it? What would she say about her own journey? Do you think she's proud of herself? Do you, do you think she looks back and doesn't recognize what happened? You know, that person that was, what, what's your sort of take on that? Is it something you even talk about with her? I'll talk about it with her if, if, if she brings it up, mm -hmm. because she doesn't want to be seen as the ex-anorexic. Yeah. She doesn't want that label. She wants to be normal, and she is normal. She's got a full life. If it comes up, what comes up usually is grief. What a poor little child I was. I was 10. I was 15. I was this. It was so hard. And then there can also be tears of gratitude. The nurses in the hospital were so kind when I was 10. So there is grief. I think also she has come to terms with, you know, we were not great parents all the way through. We made mistakes. That's why I wrote my book, because there was so much learning. So, for example, the fact we've just had a fantastic two-week holiday might be a healing. I know for me it is, but maybe for her, to contrast with a holiday we had in Tenerife when she was 15, 
where it was hell because we were eating in the, in the hotel restaurant and she wasn't eating. And I was trying to give her signs in public that she had to eat more. And she hated me for it. And I was kind of crying in secret and it was horrible. And she remembers it as, you know, it was traumatic. So we have to get over these old traumas. It, it is a traumatic journey. And I think she's blossomed. I think she's good and also makes space for grief. Another detail is she's, she's forgotten a lot of details. That's quite healing to our children. Mm -hmm. They've forgotten some of it. And tell me, anyone listening, I want them to know that you're out there. You have workshops that parents can attend, I hear, online. I want to hear about if a parent is listening to this and they want to make contact with you, they want to attend a workshop, you know, tell us how they can do that, please. Okay. So Eva Musby is my pen name. So there's only one Eva Musby online and that's me. So if they just Google that name, they'll find it. So I've got a website with ready information. Obviously my book is on Amazon and it takes you through a journey through the whole method. This is not my method, I hasten to say. It's about how to implement the method, which is in the recommendations, which certainly in the UK is in the, the official guidelines. I also have a presence on Facebook and Twitter. Again, just look for Eva Musby. I do workshops. They're very clear on my website. I do a weekly workshop to catch parents early because of the terrible waiting lists. And so every week I've got anything between six and 18 people and they're new and they need help right away. So Eva, a question that I had from a parent who knew we were interviewing you, sorry, was that do you have parents that you support overseas, not necessarily in England? Yes, everything is online. So it's everything I do is worldwide. So the, I vary the times of the workshop. So I've got people from New Zealand and I've got people from Canada and US. Again, the book on Amazon is worldwide. Yeah, everything. I've even got some resources in French because I'm bilingual and quite a few German speakers have translated some of my stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are all extremely grateful for the work that you do and grateful for your absolutely phenomenal book, Anorexia and Other Eating Disorders, How to Help Your Child Eat Well and Be Well. And I've only skim the surface of your great knowledge and wisdom born of that experience. So thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for taking the time to share yeah, your knowledge and wisdom today. Thank you for giving me this space to contribute what I can, Kathy, and all your other high quality podcasts. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. <laughs>